Okay, I did a thing that I can't decide if I regret it or not. Ooh, ooh, okay. All right, let me be your sounding board. Yeah, okay, so I've fallen down the rabbit hole onto the perfume side of TikTok. Mm, delicious, go on. And I'm I'm obsessed with perfume. Uh, my, my go-to scent is Baccarat Rouge. I'm branching out. Mm-hmm. And... And and TikTok led me to a perfume expert, led me to an article, and it turns out that Britney Spears' fantasy uh-huh. is still considered to be, like, one of the best designed commercial perfumes ever because it has all these beautiful notes, but because they're so accessible and apparently it smells like childlike and adult. I don't know. I don't know. There's science. But that was my first big kid perfume, air quotes, <laughs> and I wore it for years. And so I, I bought myself a little one of it. Did it smell so nostalgic? Here's the thing. It still smells good. Of course it does. I smell objectively quite nice. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm worried because I've been wearing it and I've been enjoying mm-hmm. it. And I thought maybe it would, it would, I don't know, bring up dark, dark memories. It just smells good. It, but I'm wearing it and I'm worried that I'm going to be walking down the street and some specifically like girl is going to get a whiff of me and then think of maybe like another girl who bullied her. <gasps> oh no. Oh no. That does feel like a real possibility. Because everyone wore this. I honestly think maybe some girls that bullied me smell like this. <laughs> I, I genuinely, I think that I, I was so ready to be like, no, like whatever they think of you, it doesn't matter. But. <laughs> Then you came out with that, and it's like, oh, well, no, because it's not a reflection on you, but, I mean, they can't help if that just, you know, that memory hits them. I think I smell, like, cupcakes, white chocolate, lychee, kiwi, and, like, teen angst. (laughs) (laughs) Like, the stress of... Of wearing almost the right thing, but not quite. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And not quite knowing what to do with your makeup, but wanting to put it on. And it's not looking how you thought you would in your it, it would in your head. And it's not that you have a bad haircut per se, but it's certainly not a good one. It doesn't suit you. <laughs> so, so this is happening. I smell objectively good, but also maybe emotionally terrible. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I want that on a t-shirt. <laughs> Hey, update on t-shirts. Um, in in kind of our, our little group of folks who say it, uh, people will remember from when Spencer was on the show, we were saying, fuck it up, Buttercup. Mm-hmm. We're making shirts. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. Oh, my God. I love that. Yeah. So it's awesome. Also, my dad says it now, which is also awesome. That's the best win of them all. Yeah. So look at us. Being cool. <laughs> yes. What's a friend group if not a place to make your own t-shirts? <laughs> it's not the journey. It's the t-shirts we made along the way. Thank you. You understand me. Yes. <laughs> What's your perfume right now? Right now, I have a couple different ones. Um, I use very sparingly the Medusa perfume I got in Italy. And then there's a company called Mimic that makes like dupes of expensive perfume. So I'm mm-hmm. using a dupe of Tom Ford Eau de Soleil. Oh, no, no, no. Okay, here's the thing. I say my signature scent is Baccarat Rouge because that's what it smells like. I wear a dupe, but you don't have to fess up to that. Just to be clear, 
<laughs> you can just say the perfume. Oh, but I, I mad respect for this person who, who like created a company to make dupes for expensive perfumes. I love that. One of my favorite things I've I've done circling around perfume and and s- hey listeners, stop me if I've said this before. But <laughs> <laughs> but I was working in a restaurant, full uniform, waiting on this couple, and I recognized that the girl was wearing baccarat rouge instantly. And I went, "Oh, mm-hmm. you're are you wearing baccarat rouge?" And she was like, "Yes," kind of in this snooty way. And I went, oh. "I wear that perfume too." And her face <gasps> fell like I was wearing a vest made entirely mm-hmm. out of plastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's not the vibe she was going for. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. What a power move. I think there's something to be said for if people are snooty about perfumes or, or things of that ilk. Maybe when people say, you know, oh, I wear Baccarat Rouge, just going like, oh, I used to wear that one. Oh, I love that. Mm. Oh, I outgrew that. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Rowan Hall. I outgrew that. Mm. Hi, I'm Tracy Harrison, and I smell like cake and kiwi and white chocolate and Britney Spears and teen <laughs> angst. <laughs> Me panic trying to remember all the notes you said earlier. <laughs> I smell like Britney Spears. <laughs> and this is Willing and Fable, the podcast that smells like original retellings and in-depth <laughs> research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. Each week, we research a topic from history or mythology, and then we write an original story to go along with that topic. So if you'd like to support our show, please check us out on social media at Willing and Fable. You know who I bet also smells good? Yeah, it's Leah from Greenleaf Geek, <laughs> who has long supported Willing and Fable. If you're part of the TTRPG community, which at this point I feel like you you either definitely are or you know someone who definitely is, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you should head over to greenleafgeek.com and shop for curated dice, custom handmade dice, all the good accoutrement that go with needing to roll dice. And when you go to her store, use code FABLE at checkout. That's F-A-B-L-E for 10% off your order. Some restrictions apply. Mm. Or... You can support our show by heading over to your local animal shelter and picking out a new furry friend to bring home. You can invite them to your nightly rituals and make them into your familiar so they can do your mysterious bidding and taunt your enemies while you take a nap. But no matter what you do, we're just glad to have you here. I really put that in the script, kind of auditioning it for you, and you just rolled with it. Absolutely. I love it. It's incredible. (laughs) So we're back to our regularly scheduled Tracy and Rowan programming and I was agonizing over picking a topic for today's episode and it occurred to me that I feel like I a little bit missed Halloween this year. I was working really hard. I was Mm -hmm. very tired. I wasn't quite living up to my spooky potential. Yeah. And so I realized that we've never fully covered werewolves on this podcast. We haven't. I don't know how we missed it for so long, but we just kept circling them. We we touched on it a little smidgen in episode 59, which is Witches Familiars, but we've not like really, really done it. Uh, so that's where we're at today. Uh, a quick heads up, this episode contains a bit of gore, a bit of cannibalism, as well as harm to children, and I'm not going to get too graphic, but... You know, werewolves are closely tied to the witch trials, and we all know how the witch trials tended to go. Fabulously. But 
Tracy specifically does not like themes of cannibalism. Thank you for remembering that. That that I appreciate that. I don't. Which is kind of a bummer because I definitely do. I think allegorically, <laughs> it's like a super strong move. Um, I know it's got good themes, but boy, does it make me want to die inside. I hate it. So, Tracy, I feel like this is kind of in line with our usual discussion on how badly the witch trials tend to go. And it's not really like fava beans and a nice Chianti. Mm-hmm. So I think you might be okay. <laughs> and everyone else who feels like they might be a Tracy in this scenario and not a Rowan, you you may or may not be okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be the sounding board for everyone else. <laughs> Just start one long, terrible scream to act as kind of like a bleep out. <laughs> it's just from now to the end of the episode, me just <laughs> screaming. Yeah, that no, makes no, for no, good no. audio, right? You'll know when we get there. Everyone, you'll know when we get there. Okay. 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 So a werewolf coming from the Old English for man-wolf or a lycanthrope from the ancient Greek for wolf-human is a person who can shapeshift into a wolf. Occasionally, these shifts will land somewhere in the middle between human and wolf in what is called a therianthropic hybrid, which is mm. such a good word. Yeah, it is. Therianthropy being the mythological ability or sometimes affliction uh, to metamorphose into an animal. Hybrid in this case being someone who's a little bit person and a little bit puppy. I would love to be a little bit person, a little bit puppy. The furry a community bit- is very grateful that you just said that. <laughs> A little bit country, a little bit rock and roll, a little bit person, a little bit puppy. (laughs) A little bit breakfast, a little bit dinner. (laughs) I would also like to note that while werewolf is a word that specifically encompasses, you guessed it, wolves, the idea of a were-animal is prevalent throughout history. These animals are usually but not always predators. And because a large part of the theme is the animalistic, deadly qualities that a predator possesses, we got were-cat, we got were-raccoon, we got (laughs) (laughs) were-bear. No one says that. I'm just saying that. I love it. You you have to read this next section title because it... (laughs) It does the, the, my favorite thing, which is to take a joke that you've already established and then twist it and make a play on it, which is like peak humor to me. And this is so good. So if you've been with us for a minute, you know that I like to call kind of my opening section, where did you come from? Where did you go? <laughs> so it's where did you come from? Where did you go? But like werewolf, W-E-R-E. <laughs> it's only funny in writing. <laughs> It's funny to me. <laughs> Where wolf did you come from? Where wolf did you go? <laughs> so it's that perfect, stupid, funny that I love. Great job. Great work. Let's find out where they came from and where they go. Well, no one is exactly sure where the idea of werewolves comes from. Credit is often given to the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is considered to be the OG Western prose from around 2100 BC. In the tale, Gilgamesh jilts Ishtar because she has turned a former lover, a shepherd, into a wolf, which ruins this man's life. And I love that werewolves are like so many myths on this podcast where it's like Epic of Gilgamesh, Ancient Greece, Ancient Rome, and then we get the map of it just spreading out across the world. Yes. Yeah. The ancient Greeks, the ancient Romans, and similar powers were just like, I conquer you and you get werewolves. I conquer you and you get werewolves. (laughs) Everyone gets werewolves. (laughs) 
425 BC, the ancient Greek historian Herodotus describes a nomadic tribe from Scythia, which is present-day Russia, known as the Neuri. I don't know that I said that right. Who's to say? Certainly not me. They're described as magical men that could transform into wolves. And it's likely that Herodotus described their ability to transform because they came from a colder region where pelts were likely an important part of someone's wardrobe. This is a theme, right? We see it in selkies. We see it in all kinds of mythology. People want to classify outsiders as savages. So they compare them to animals. Mm-hmm. It's that that tone is just going to stick with us. When I'm not saying it, just assume that it's there. So these are outside northerners who used wolf pelts in their clothing, and Herodotus went, "They must be wolf men." Yeah, and you know, it, it's a it's a good place to start a story if people are already upset about these people. Oh, absolutely. And also, even if they're not upset, it's probably a good way to poke fun in a in a kind of ugly way. Mm-hmm. I use the word fun loosely. <laughs> yeah, it's fun for the person making the joke and the person making the joke alone. Right, right. Uh, okay, here's a moment where I'm going to mention some ancient Grecian cannibalism. To be honest, it's nothing that icky. And I also think this kind of falls under that heading that Tracy and I talk about where it's back so far in history. Mm-hmm. And it's so mythologically coded that you're like, eh. <laughs> right, it feels removed. Okay, all eh. right, I believe that. Yeah. I don't know. If, if it's not, just start screaming. Okay, <laughs> okay. In Arcadia, a region of ancient Greece, Zeus was worshipped as Lycaean Zeus or Wolf Zeus. Mm-hmm. In a 380 BC story, the Greek philosopher Plato told a story about the protector-turned-tyrant, quote, of the shrine of Lycaean Zeus. In this, the character Socrates says, quote, the story goes that he who tastes of the one bit of human entrails minced up with those of other victims is inevitably transformed into a wolf. Oh, wow. Interesting. In fact, literary evidence from Pliny the Elder and Pausanias discuss cult members of Zeus mixing human flesh into their ritual sacrifice. In the tale they discuss, a young athlete known as Demarcus is compelled to consume the entrails of a young boy and was thus transformed into a wolf for nine years. And archaeological evidence does actually support the idea of human sacrifice practiced at this particular shrine to Zeus. That is interesting. So the the thought is that if you consume a human, you will be transformed into a wolf kind of against even maybe your own wishes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this belief kind of pervaded ancient Greece and, and continued on throughout history. The, but the idea that eat human, become wolf is like a two-step process is, is definitely an original part of the mythos, especially because you can see it on the back end, right? Where werewolves eat people. That's their right. whole thing. Mm -hmm. Unless you're in the romance novel corner of the world – then it gets a little spicy, but primarily eat people. <laughs> <laughs> okay, outside of the romance genre. Got it. There is a more famous story of lycanthropy, which I'm going to say in a lot of creative ways throughout the course of this episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lycanthropy, lycanthropy. I've heard it a couple ways. I, I don't know. It's like me and Patroclus or Patroclus. <laughs> I know. I, that, I've gotten now into the habit of saying Patroclus, and I get, I get weird looks Patroclus from people. Patroclus sounds 
hotter. I'm sorry it does. <laughs> it's just, it's certainly shorter and easier to say. I don't know. You know what? We don't have to get into this. <laughs> this is a, this is an off-the-podcast you and I chatting for an hour right, conversation. Right. <laughs> the merits of Achilles and Patroclus, Achilles and Patroclus. I'm, I am, I, I think Achilles and Patroclus just sounds nicer. I do. Let's retcon ancient Greece. So first mentioned by Plato and then expanded upon in Latin texts in Hygienius's Fabulae and Ovid's Metamorphosis, we have two versions of the same story. In one, the sons of mythical king Lycaon sacrificed their youngest brother to prove Zeus's weakness. They served the god the body in a feast. And then Zeus struck them down with a lightning bolt and turned the king into a wolf. In another version, specifically Ovid's, Lycaon mutilated and murdered a hostage that was under Zeus's protection, and thus the king was transformed into a wolf. Ovid wrote, quote, He tried to speak, but his voice broke into an echoing howl. His ravening soul infected his jaws. His murderous longings were turned on the cattle. He still was possessed by bloodlust. His garments were changed to a shaggy coat and his arms into legs. He was now transformed into a wolf. And that story is the origin of the term lycanthrope. Oh, okay. That makes sense. It came from the story of King Ly Lycaon and his feeding of a son to Zeus. I want to know why they had the audacity. Like, what a weird move. Yeah. What possesses you to go, you know what's worth it to stand up to a god? Murdering my own child. Here, big, bad god man who frequently ruins the lives of mortals. I'm just going to give you a little snacky. Yeah, yeah. Just a, it, don't look too close at it. It's totally fine. <laughs> Folklorist Carol Rose writes in her book, Giants, Monsters, and Dragons, that during the following centuries, people came to believe that a person could become a lycanthrope by, quote, being cursed or by being conceived under a new moon or by having eaten certain herbs or by sleeping under the full moon on Friday or by drinking water that has been touched by a wolf, end quote. I, I can't do any of the things I love. <laughs> I know. How am I going to spend my Saturday nights now? Right? It's just that's there go all my options. The joke was Friday nights. I would like everybody to know I picked the wrong day of the week. <laughs> oh, that's true. You cannot sleep under a full moon on a Friday. <laughs> I mean, I mean, what's the point, honestly, of even having a Friday? I recognize that under a full moon probably means out in the open, not in your house. But the first time I read that quote, I truly sat there and went, you're always under the moon. I had the same reaction. Okay, good. Good, good. <laughs> There's also werewolf lore that very closely resembles the mythology of Selkies, which you know excited mm -hmm. me quite a lot. In this version, werewolves could dress in their protective wolf skin by night and then hide it by day. If the pelt was found and taken while the werewolf was in human form, the previously invulnerable monster could be killed. In line with the clothing element, the 13th century Icelandic writing the Volsunga Saga describes men wearing wolf skins that allowed them to fight in battle as wolves. Now we're kind of hearkening back to the, you know, the people that we don't like. They're they're wearing fur. They're going to kill us. Right. But how cool would it be to be able to put on a wolf skin and turn into a wolf? Like that now takes it from this, oh, they're these barbaric, 
barbarian outsiders to we are powerful warriors. That's kind of the feeling I'm Well, it's getting. interesting. And I don't have a really good handle on it because this is a translated text. But in the Volsunga saga, how much of it was, you know, we're going to be ferocious and scare these people that we want to fight with the wolf right. being a positive and how much of it was framed in the translation or adjusted over the years. Other beliefs posited that a person could only transform into a werewolf if they took off their clothes and could only change back if they got the clothes back on. And I really love this one because, like, what qualifies as back on? Right. I'm imagining a giant black furred wolf struggling with a button fly. (laughs) (laughs) All of the clothes are just piled on its head or, like, you have the the pants through, like, just the back legs and you're trying to pull it over the backside. Like, there's a lot of really funny images that you could do of this. Like when Malcolm has to wear a t-shirt after surgery. Oh, yeah. Oh, he wore a fully just person's T-shirt for a few weeks there. (laughs) There are also tales of a specific belt or girdle that could transform a person into a werewolf. And this accessory was pretty widespread in the Christian mythology because it was associated with the devil. In Hungarian folklore, it's said that at the age of seven, children who are cursed or abused by their parents can leave home at night to hunt in the form of a wolf. Uh, 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 wh- uh, what? That's just a lot of power dropped out of nowhere. Can you imagine being six, almost seven, and just waiting to find out if you get to be a wolf at night? You know you and I would have been so obsessed with that. Yes. Like, give me that curse. Yeah. Among South Slavs and the Kashubian people in present-day Poland, babies born with hair, a birthmark, or a call on their heads possess the ability to shapeshift into any animal they desire. I was born with hair. Where's my ability? I am so devastated that I was born with none of these things. Lots of babies were born with hair. Yeah, many. Many are. Yeah. It feels like too many. Like, they shouldn't have included that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Anthropologist David Gordon White called Central Asia the, quote, vortex of scientropy because, quote, races of dogmen were frequently placed there by writers. And scientropy, chianthropy, that's that's dog werewolf and specifically non-wolf dog. Okay, okay. Numerous indigenous traditions from North America describe bears that can shed their skin to become human, to marry human women, and the offspring of these unions are known to be both beautiful and incredibly strong. That's cool. In Armenian folklore, there are tales of women who, as a consequence of committing deadly sins, are cursed to spend seven years in the form of a wolf. According to Wikipedia, quote, In a typical account, a condemned woman is visited by a wolf-skin-touting spirit who orders her to wear the skin, which causes her to acquire frightful cravings for human flesh soon after. With her better nature overcome, the she-wolf devours each of her own children, then her relatives' children in order of relationship, and finally the children of strangers. She wanders only at night, with doors and locks springing open at her approach. When morning arrives... She reverts to human form and removes her wolf skin. The transformation is generally said to be involuntary, but there are alternate versions involving voluntary metamorphosis where the women can transform at will, end quote. It, uh, it smacks of uh, a fear of women and women's power. Yes, thank you. You knew exactly what I'm going for here. It, how do you condemn a woman 
you make it so that she kills children. Why? Because one of the most important things that women can do kind of throughout history for evolutional purposes, but in a lot of cultures, is make babies. Oh, no, now the women are killing them. Well, and to do it in a way where it's, oh, well, I would never think that that Rowan could ever do such a thing. Well, yeah, it's not Rowan. It's this curse on her at night, but, you know, it's still causing harm, so we have to take care of her. Like, it takes away the humanity of the person and makes it so that anyone can just... You know, depending on how seriously this was taken, anyone could just accuse someone of being this creature. Absolutely. And especially because infant mortality has been so high, especially in Europe, during the kind of general time period of the witch trials. Mm -hmm. If children are dying just because babies die when life is hard, then you can point to the woman you want to get rid of. Right. Right. There are also a cluster of beliefs that some associate with Norse colonization, though it's hard to know exactly how and when a variety of these beliefs evolved. Mexico has the Nagual. The Nashkapis believe the caribou afterlife was guarded by giant wolves. The Navajo had stories of a witch called Mycob that wore wolf's clothing. And in Haiti, there is a werewolf spirit called Jerouge that can possess bodies and lead them to cannibalism. Where European werewolves are traditionally driven to share their curse with others through bite, this spirit uses tricks to convince mothers to give their children to it. Ooh, scary. Is that sarcastic scary? No, that wasn't sarcastic at all. That's genuinely terrifying. Imagine being unable to resist giving away your own child. Yeah. That's awful. In France, in 1521, Pierre Bourgot and Michel Verdon allegedly allied with the devil, and they claimed to be in possession of an ointment that could turn them into wolves. Apparently, they murdered multiple children and they burned at the stake for it. The, this one interests me because the ointment here reminds me of fairy ointment. You mm -hmm. know, you can wipe it in your eyes and see the other world. Ointment yeah. is very – it's a very big theme that travels through – Northern European. Okay. What would possess these two people to say that they allied with the devil and could turn into wolves? Torture. Oh, that'll do it. All right. Yep. You'll say pretty much anything. It's pretty much always torture. And I will say in my reading, it wasn't described that these people in particular were tortured. Like, I don't know exactly what happened to them. But every detail around this <laughs> was all about how people were getting tortured. Okay. So... I would bet at least a Starbucks that <laughs> they <laughs> okay. were tortured. All right. One, yeah. Ooh, not Starbucks. At least, Ooh, at least a coffee. Yeah. Actually, we don't like Starbucks right now. Shop at your local coffee shop. The Human Predator, a historical chronicle of serial murder and forensic investigation by Catherine Ramsland, posits that the term therianthropy may have been used as early as the 16th century for the criminal trials of those suspected of being werewolves. That's my favorite word in this. Ooh. Say it again. Therianthropy. Mm. Therianthropic hybrid. <laughs> it's a good word. It's good. Yeah. Ooh, that rolls off the tongue. If you're suffering from therianthropy. <laughs> in 1725, Peter the Wild Boy became famous when he was found naked and moving on all fours in a German forest. Tracy just nodded because we both are familiar with this story. Yeah. He ate with his hands and could not speak and was considered to either be a werewolf or have been raised by wolves, according to the general public. 
he was, quote, adopted mm-hmm. by the courts of King George I and King George II, and he lived as their, quote, pet. Research suggests that the boy had a condition that wasn't discovered until 1978, known as Pitts-Hopkins syndrome. It includes seizures, a lack of speech, difficulty breathing, distinct features of the face, and intellectual challenges. But in the modern cultural zeitgeist, there are two parts of lycanthropic transformation that really stuck around. And the first step was being bitten by another werewolf and living to tell the tale. Mm -hmm. Then transforming again and again and again under the light of the full moon. The idea of a transformation or a madness that comes with the moon's phases has spread outside of the circles of the more mythologically inclined. While there are multiple studies that disprove it, it's common for doctors, nurses, and those who work in emergency services to report an uptick in difficult incidents during a full moon. The History Channel discusses one study that may support this uptick. Quote, according to a study conducted at Australia's Calvary Matter Newcastle Hospital, a full moon brings out the, quote, beast in many humans. The study found that of the 91 violent acute behavior incidents at the hospital between August 2008 and July 2009, 23% happened during a full moon, end quote. They noted that while some patients attacked and bit staff, many were under the influence of drugs or alcohol during the time of their behavior. There are numerous modern practices and beliefs linked to werewolves. In the epic history of werewolves for how stuff works, Tracy V. Wilson writes, quote, In the 1930s, researchers working in Ghana reported a widespread belief that people could turn into hyenas. These shapeshifters were typically witches living in the grasslands. As recent as the 1980s, an obscure practice in the Iberian Peninsula, the part of Europe that includes Spain and Portugal, claimed to, in part, prevent children from becoming werewolves. This practice involved older children acting as godparents for their younger siblings, beginning with the seventh or ninth child. According to folktales in this part of the world, werewolves recruit new members from excess children. Children who are born with a call or with part of their amniotic sac covering their face might be more susceptible to becoming werewolves or, conversely, healers, end quote. There's something very intriguing about the idea of a child that could be born with either this terrible curse or wonderful gift of, oh, they're either going to become this destructive werewolf or this, you know, maybe powerful healer. From a story perspective, that's interesting. The rest of this, terrifying. I feel like it's accounting for, like, if we don't like this person, they're a werewolf. Mm-hmm. If we do like them and want to keep them around, they're a healer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also, can we talk about seventh or ninth child? Mm-hmm. That's um, so many children. It's entirely too many. More than I ever want, ever. About seven or nine more, yeah, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think in all of these versions of the myth, we're seeing kind of the same themes, which is condemnation of women. Uh, a lot of children mm-hmm. coming up, you, the death of children and excess of children, uh, and this idea of crazed behavior and behaving immorally. Right. Yes. Becoming a werewolf was, for the most part, seen as a curse. And this meant 
in a lot of cultures that the sufferer was not just a killer, but also a victim. Right. That's, I think, what makes the story so interesting to a lot of people. At least me, mm -hmm. I find that duality fascinating. Yeah. And I think there's an element of pity in it that's really useful. It, it's kind of what you already said. This is really just a yes and you, but that, you know, you couldn't help it. Mm -hmm. We have to put you out of your misery. Oof. Right. It's not your fault, but it is your problem. It's particularly insidious, I think, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. way. In The Werewolf Delusion, Ian Woodward says, Traditionally, there are three principal ways in which a wolf can be scourged of his demons. He may be cured medicinally and surgically. He may be exercised. And the most dramatic, he may be shot with a special bullet. The special bullet was typically a silver bullet. Mm -hmm. In Germanic and Romanian folklore, silver repels both vampires and werewolves, and that belief has become increasingly pervasive right. over the years. Also, the crows outside my window are having an absolute party, so if you hear them, that's why. Say hi. That's They're lovely. I also have two great horned owls that live on my block now. That's so cool. Yeah, and they flirt and hoot with each other all night. <gasps> Aw. It's, it's very adorable, it's actually. It's really cute. I love that. They're huge. Oh, I bet. Do you see them often? Lately. Hmm. I'm wondering how long they're going to stick around. But I, and I can tell their voices apart. That's really cute. Have you named them yet? No. I should. Yeah. All right. Think of names. Anyway, werewolves. <laughs> anyway, werewolves. <laughs> we will dive into more detail about lycanthropy and medical science. Tracy, that's for you. But know that if what we're only going to loosely refer to as medicine was involved, the cures were usually tortures. Drinking, mm -hmm. awful poison, vomiting, bloodletting, the works. Woodward goes on to say, quote, So severe, so brutal were the cures advocated by early medicinal practitioners that, not surprisingly, a great many werewolfic patients died by the hands of those who promised them salvation. We love the way humans used old-timey medicine, which is if it looks like it does something, then it's doing something. So if it's making you throw up, it's probably healing you. If you strap a chicken to it, the problem is fixed. It's solved. The problem goes into the chicken. What more can you ask from me? <laughs> Wolfsbane may also have been used to fend off werewolves, oh, or at yeah. least if not functionally employed, it did become part of the folklore. Wolfsbane likely got its name because it was a poisonous plant that was used to kill regular run-of-the-mill wolves mm. that were a menace to livestock. It was so poisonous that pinning it to one's clothing or interacting with it in any way without gloves was just a bad idea. So this is perhaps another example of the cure being worse than the problem. Mm -hmm. Here are a few rapid fire ways to get rid of werewolves from around the world. Striking the werewolf on the forehead or scalp with a knife. And this is a Sicilian belief by way of Arabic practice. You could address the creature by its Christian name, that's German. You could scold the werewolf, that's Danish. Love it. Or there's decapitation with a spade, then exorcism, then throwing the head into a stream, and then watching the weight of its sins causing it to sink. And that's Germany, Poland, northern France. Uh, can I just go scold 
please? That one sounds the easiest. The Danish are so punk rock. Like, werewolf <laughs> coming to kill you, bad wolf. <laughs> yeah. I love it. <laughs> That's my favorite one. You have to read this next title, too. <laughs> I do these puns for you. I love it. It's, oh, you dog. <laughs> <laughs> there is a particularly famous case of a supposed werewolf going to trial. The German farmer Peter Stump, alleged serial killer, cannibal, werewolf, and practitioner of witchcraft, he was known as the Werewolf of Bedburg. Ooh, information and a voice. I feel so special. I feel like I have to say it in that silly voice because otherwise it. it's just the Werewolf of Bedburg. Yeah, say it again in the fun way. The Werewolf of Bedburg. Oh, it's so much better. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I chose this one for two reasons. One, because I really wanted to illustrate how the mythology of werewolves was used to mistreat people during the witch trials. Okay. And two, we have so much information on this trial in particular. And that is because there are two surviving copies of a 16-page pamphlet from London in 1590 that was translated from the original German version. And this text was discovered in 1920, which I think is just buck wild. What, where was it that it needed to be discovered in 1920? It's not like we're digging up a tomb. This had to be in like a, a house like or a, a business right. or something. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. I wonder if someone saved it in their own personal collection or library. It's the, I think that's so awesome. And then the grandkids get it and mm -hmm. then they find it. There are also... Other contemporary sources like diaries and, and references in different documents to the case. So that's been very helpful in kind of not only putting together what happened, but validating that it wasn't just one fantastical story. Mm -hmm. Also, we love history. Write stuff down. Yes. Because your phone doesn't count. I, th I think we should go back to clay tablets. Okay, come on. Your phone doesn't count because digital records we just can't preserve as well. I'm not... Oh, I'm not arguing. I genuinely think we should go back to clay tablets. I think that would be oh, more okay. fun. <laughs> I was like, I'm not being like an anti-tech hater. <laughs> no, no, I just, I want to write in clay. I support that. Uh, let's all throw vases ghost style and then keep our records on the vases. I love it. I love it. I love it. Genuinely, I'm so on board with that. <laughs> So an interesting detail about our friend, the alleged werewolf, supposedly his last name comes from the fact that his left hand had been cut off, Stump. Oh, oh. I don't know if that was pronounced differently, and there were a lot of different variations in spelling that were suggested. Mm -hmm. But this missing left hand was used to prove his guilt because of course, the wolf was also missing its left paw. That's forensics, baby. It's convenient, baby. <laughs> the little is known about his early life. Peter was a wealthy farmer in his rural community and during the 1580s seemed to be a widower with a daughter and a son. Truly, 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 his 1589 trial was buck wild. And by buck wild, I mean harrowing. Ooh, okay. There is no way that anyone today could possibly believe his confessions because Peter was extensively tortured, mm. including being stretched on the rack. 
He eventually confessed that he'd been practicing black magic since the age of 12 and that the devil had given him a magical belt to transform him into, quote, the likeness of a greedy devouring wolf, strong and mighty, with eyes great and large, which in the night sparkled like fire, a mouth great and wide, with most sharp and cruel teeth, a huge body and mighty paws. No bell was ever found, notably. Yeah, of course not. Um, what a poetic way to describe that, though. Yeah, I don't know if that was his direct quote or it was, you know, his quote jazzed up for the pamphlet. Right. And when you asked, you know, why would anyone ever confess to that? I think you're just either yes-anding or making up the story that you know people want to hear so that they stop stretching your spine apart. Oh, yeah, especially when it gets to the point of, you know, there weren't rules around the practices so they could say like you're a werewolf aren't you and all you have to do is go yes and now you confess like it's not that they're trying to be diplomatic about getting these answers out of you and and truly if the options are tortured for a very long time or killed comparatively quickly i choose killed yeah i would not hold up well under torture no 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 i don't hold up well if i'm a little bit hangry (laughs) Yeah, I don't hold up well under perfect conditions. (laughs) Okay, so here's our warning. It's going to get a little gross for a sec, so just skip ahead a minute or two if you don't like violence, gore, cannibalism, or the brief mention, no detail, of harm to children and incest. It's not really worse graphically than what we've been dealing with. It's just a lot at once for perspective. Okay, all right, let's do it. I'm ready. (laughs) Also, I wrote... Immediately under that, the people who tortured supposed witches and werewolves were sick bastards. Correct. She is correct. Story goes, for 25 years, apparently, Peter Stump had been an, quote, insatiable bloodsucker. He fed on goats, sheep, men, women, and children. And when threatened with torture, he confessed to killing and eating 14 children and two pregnant women. Apparently, the quotes ate their hearts panting hot and raw, and dainty morsels were used. Someone jazzed this up. There's no way someone being tortured is getting that verbose with it. Oh, absolutely not. Dainty morsels sounds like a retcon after the Silence of the Lambs came out. (laughs) Yes, it does. Of the supposed murdered children, his son was included when he supposedly led the boy out into the woods and killed him. But perhaps the most tragic of all, he was accused of having an incestuous relationship with his teenage daughter, who was sentenced to die with him. And that, to me, is so clearly a way to include this young woman in being killed. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because can you think of anything worse than a young woman having sex? Yes, we can. We're just going to make it that step even more awful. And and keep in mind that at any version of this, she has no agency. She's a teenage girl. Absolutely not. And this man was a widower, so there's no, like, woman's influence. Mm-hmm. On October 31st, Halloween of 1589, Peter Stump was executed alongside his daughter Sybil and Mistress Catherine. I don't know what mistress means in this scenario specifically. This was considered to be one of the most brutal werewolf trial killings on record. 
He was put to a wheel where red-hot pinchers were used and, quote, flesh was torn from his body. His limbs were broken with the blunt end of an axe head. He was beheaded and his body was burned. His daughter and mistress were flayed, <gasps> strangled, and burned alongside him. Unnecessary. Un absolutely unnecessary. Yeah, I don't know how flaying someone can be justified as ever. It, well, forever, but in specifically this case, as a punishment or like retaliation for supposed crimes. Supposed crimes, especially in which you are in every way the victim. It's just awful. It's so brutal. To warn others the price of such behavior, authorities erected a pole that contained the torture wheel, symbol of a wolf, and Peter's severed head. If you skipped, you can come back now, just so you know. Basically, for Peter Stump, everything was bad. That's mm -hmm, what you missed. Mm -hmm. And for his children. For everyone. Everyone around him, yeah. Yeah, it's just, there's so much moralizing wrapped up into werewolf lore. And for the most part, it is setting an example to keep people in line. Mm -hmm. And then justifying it, usually under the guise of religion, which is bleak. Oh, yeah. And we've seen it over and over and over again. Yeah. Uh, saying that your actions are associated with your religion is a firewall that's been used and continues to be used. Uh, to justify some of the most heinous acts in human history. The thing that interests me about this case, and kind of these cases in general, is that I truly have no idea where and why there were enough people who died to try this man for such heinous, primarily fabricated crimes. Right. Like, in theory, he could have been a killer, right? Presumably, he could have murdered someone. Mm -hmm. But for 25 years, he was just going around killing a lot of people in a comparatively small community, and everyone only decided to act on it 25 years later? Right. Right. Were you terrorized for that long without a being able to put the clues together? I thought the wolf was missing a hand or <laughs> paw. <laughs> right, right. It seems like a pretty A to B situation. So I will say that we on Willing and Fable know that the witch trials were used to gain power and a rich widower farmer is someone whose land local authorities might really have had their eye on. Mm -hmm. Like others who were, quote, tried, read, tortured. As witches, hundreds upon hundreds of people lost their lives for reportedly being werewolves. If you'd like to know more about witch trials, which is a one-to-one -one of what's happening here, you can listen to our episodes 33, 58, and 59. Yes. All right. Let's talk about clinical lycanthropy. Let's do it. We cannot talk about werewolves without talking about clinical lycanthropy, which we've mentioned on this podcast in the past, I think. All I know is you and I have talked about it. I just can't remember if it was on the podcast or not. I never know if it's off the podcast or on. So this is a rare psychiatric syndrome that centers around the delusion that a person can, has, or is transformed into an animal. And this supposed transformation is also known as, quote, species identity disorder or species dysphoria. Okay. According to Wikipedia, a study from McLean Hospital proposed some diagnostic criteria for this. Quote, a patient reports in a moment of lucidity or reminiscence that they sometimes feel as an animal or have felt like one, 
and, quote, a patient behaves in a manner that resembles animal behavior, for example, howling, growling, or crawling. Wikipedia writes, quote, a review of the medical literature from early 2004 lists over 30 published cases of clinical lycanthropy, only the minority of which have wolf lycanthropy or dog chianthropy themes. Canines are certainly not uncommon, although the experience of being transformed into other animals, such as a hyena, cat, horse, bird, or tiger, has been reported on more than one occasion. Transformation into frogs and even bees has been reported in some instances. In Japan, transformation into foxes and dogs was common. A 1989 case study described how one individual reported a serial transformation, experienced a change from human to dog, to horse, and then finally cat, before returning to the reality of human existence after treatment, end quote. So it's worth noting the absolutely fascinating detail of all of this, that the culture someone is brought up in absolutely affects the likelihood of a person believing that they can transform into an animal, and it also affects the animal that they're more likely to believe they become. Mm, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So in the quote above, I hope that the mention of foxes in relation to Japan and mythology reminded you of our episode number 73 on the Japanese fox spirits known as kitsune. In a locale where foxes don't exist, especially pre-internet, it would be very unlikely that a person would believe that they could transform into one. Absolutely. And if you add in a particular cultural or spiritual experience and then add in a mythology in which people can transform at all, mm -hmm. the likelihood just goes up and up and up. Over the years, it's generally been considered that lycanthropy is an expression of other conditions, mm. such as bipolar disorder, clinical depression, schizophrenia, dissociative identity disorder, drug use and intoxication, withdrawal, traumatic brain injury, dementia, seizures, cerebrovascular disease, etc. Yeah, so it seems like it's more a symptom of something else than its own uh, disorder most of the time. Exactly. It it it, it is getting labeled as its own disorder cuz it's I imagine in some in in part because it's a bit flashy. Mm -hmm. But if someone is experiencing a mental health incident that causes that hallucinations or feelings of being transformed, you can see the way that the belief systems and mythology feed into that because that idea doesn't come out of nowhere. No, no. Yeah, it's got to come from something. And and it makes so much sense that the obviously it's just the more you're exposed to this, the more that you can engage with it and participate in it. So if your culture does have this mythology around transforming into foxes, it doesn't feel like a huge jump the way that it might in other cultures. It makes complete sense. According to the 1999 paper, Lycanthropy, New Evidence of Its Origin by H.F. Mosley, an important factor in this condition might be changes in the part of the brain known to be involved in proprioception, how people understand their sense of self and movement in space. A neuroimaging study of two individuals diagnosed with clinical lycanthropy showed that these portions of the brain displayed unusual activity, which means when the subjects reported their bodies changing shape, they may actually experience physical sensations that affirm that belief. That's fascinating. 
Isn't it fascinating? It's also terrifying because, I mean, imagine being so unable to trust your own brain and your own perception. Oh, absolute horror show. There are a few medical diseases and conditions that may be explanations for why people throughout history suspected they're community members of werewolfery. (laughs) I like the term werewolfery. Werewolfery. (laughs) In, In this case, rather than someone suspecting themselves. The three most common are hypertrichosis, which creates unusually long hair on the face or body. Uh Uh-huh. Porophyria, which is extremely high sensitivity to light that might cause people to only want to come out at night. And rabies, which is a viral disease transmitted through the bite of an animal, one of the symptoms of which is foaming at the mouth. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Tracy. Yes. This quote, it's specifically for you. Ooh, okay. From our, our friend, our love, Wikipedia, quote, Notions that lycanthropy was due to a medical condition go back to the 7th century, when the Alexandrian physician Paulus Egonetta attributed lycanthropy to melancholia, or an excess of black bile. During 1563, a Lutheran physician named Johann Weyer wrote that werewolves had an imbalance in their melancholic humor and exhibited the physical symptoms of paleness, quote, a dry tongue and a great thirst, as well as sunken, dim, and dry eyes. Even King James VI, in his 1597 treatise Demonology, does not blame werewolf behavior on delusions created by the devil, but, quote, an excess of melancholy as the culprit which causes some men to believe that they are wolves and to counterfeit the actions of these animals. The perception of an association between mental illness and animalistic behavior can be traced throughout the history of folklore from many different countries, end quote. Oh, it's so fascinating. So this must have happened enough that they were like, okay, you have too much black bile, so now you think you're a wolf. It's fascinating that had to happen enough that they came up with an explanation for it. Yeah. How many people were walking around barking? (laughs) (laughs) Enough to diagnose it, apparently, even that far back. Or does it just grow? Does the does the lore just grow and grow and someone's like, I'm going to be a scientist about it? Do you have a single patient? No, but there are. Surely somewhere. Yeah, someone just decided to, to solve a problem that doesn't really exist. And I'm sure it's kind of like a catch-22 where people make it exist and then people get sick and have delusions and then they do the thing because they believe it exists. And then there it is. Yep. So Therians are people who identify as non-human. Mm-hmm. On a non-physical level. Okay. They may exhibit involuntary animalistic behaviors, but this is not always the case. Therians may use the term species dysphoria to describe their experience, linking the concept with gender or body dysmorphic disorder. Another common term is transspecies, which furthers the effort to link the concept with those who identify as another gender Mm -hmm. from what they're born with. According to Wikipedia, quote, in an online community survey of 523 non-human identifying people, 75.1% said they experienced species dysphoria, and 8.2% were unsure. In four surveys of furries, Depending on the sample, between 25% and 44% responded that they considered themselves to be less than 100% human. 
compared to 7% of a sample of the general American population. I think this is very interesting. I will point out, you know, you have some of the numbers here. And for the survey of furries, the numbers are fairly low. It's 4,700, 900, and 1,000. And then for the population of American people who say, you know, how they feel about being human or less than human, it's only 800. So mm-hmm. I think it's important to note those numbers because that's not a huge population size. No, that's a really good flag. I would also add, I think this is kind of getting a little bit near the uh, the community of people on the internet who uh, ha- are, it's like the pipeline to cults, that mm. thing where they're like spiritually awakened and they're like not really from Earth, they're an alien consciousness. It's that toxic new new age, new wave stuff. Yeah, that like, mm-hmm. I'm not really a human. I think it feels a little bit like it could be used as a tool to uh, remove some accountability. Oh, oh yeah, interesting. Uh, for some behaviors. Mm-hmm. I'm sure, like many things, that's not always 100% true. But I can see very clearly the way that it might be used to ill ends. I've also met some people who talk to me about this and their experiences with it and I would not go around those people again. Oh, So that might be personal experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we're going back to the myths. Modern day folks have gone back and said that certain mythological stories are examples of clinical lycanthropy. Okay. Neurologist Andrew Day Larner wrote about Circe turning Odysseus's crew into pigs, possibly being one of the earliest examples of clinical lycanthropy. Uh, Victorian scholars, that's red flag. And more recently, <laughs> yes. professor and biblical scholar Catherine Clark Kroger wrote that several parts of the Bible, including the following passage about King Nebuchadnezzar, described clinical lycanthropy. Quote, he was driven... From among men, and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. Daniel 4, 33. In my humble opinion, a large amount of mythology that includes people turning into animals, specifically stories with clear moral lessons that align with a particular culture or faith, Those are more clever allegory than historical interpretation of mental illness. Mm -hmm. Uh, Could some stories of werewolves be related to fear of uncanny behaviors witnessed in any given community? Definitely. Is the incredibly famous and frequently fantastical myth of Circe turning men that treated her very poorly into pigs an example of clinical lycanthropy? I would say not, no. Yeah, yeah. I think just because you can make a comparison to something doesn't necessarily mean it. it is a fact or it's true. Like, yes, clinical lycanthropy involves believing you are a different species. I don't think that that directly equates to human got turned into different species, so it is an example of this thing. Yeah, especially because in both of those examples, a powerful force or person is turning those people mm-hmm. into werewolves for a specific reason 
Right. It's not a they believe this is what they are. We're exploring that. They came to the island and said they were pigs who'd been turned into men. Like it's not – it's very different. Yeah. It's it, – werewolves are kind of the chicken and the egg situation. Mm-hmm. Like which came first? Someone running around on all fours barking and biting people or allegories where people are turned into animals? Mm-hmm. I have a I have a bet, but <laughs> – <laughs> Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I'm not going to hang my hat on it. (laughs) In the article, The Ancient Origins of Werewolves, Tanika Kusman, writing for The Conversation, says, quote, The idea that there was a link between biology, i.e. appearance, and immoral behavior developed fully in the late 20th century. However, minority groups were more often the target than mythical kings. Law enforcement, scientists, and the medical community joined forces to find cures for socially deviant behavior such as criminality, violence, and even homosexuality. Science and medicine were used as a vehicle through which bigotry and fear could be maintained as shown by the treatment of HIV-affected men throughout the 1980s. However, werewolf stories show the idea has ancient origins. For as long as authors have been changing bad men into wolves, we have been looking for the biological link between man and action. I would say that quote pretty much hits the nail on the head. Pretty much hits the wolf on the scalp. (laughs) (laughs) For the most part. Werewolf lore falls under the heading of anamorphism, which is the ability to transform into an animal or an animal hybrid starting out as a human. But anthropomorphism, or the attribution of human traits onto non-human entities, the novel Watership Down by Richard Adams is a really good example of this. Uh, This is another tool of storytelling that fits right alongside the idea Mm -hmm. that if human behaves XYZ bad way, human becomes beast. The two examples I mentioned, Circe and Daniel 433, seem more in line with this kind of mythological mode of expression than a need to account for why a local farmer is frothing at the mouth. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. So inspired by both anamorphism and anthropomorphism, (laughs) here's my piece for the week. Oh, yay. Okay. (laughs) There is a story among us that Moon can turn the wolves into humans and that they must suffer with this curse for all their lives until they die or convince her to transform them back. I believed this was only a tale we told to keep young pups away from villages and fires, but now I know it to be true. Every so often, in a pattern like a tide, Moon deigns to turn me into a man. It is a hateful experience. I fear it above all others, but still, it is not wholly unwelcome. I learn quite a lot, you see. I bring the knowledge back to the rest of the pack, and we are safer for it. I understand their movements and their language, the dullness of their senses and the fragileness of their love. They are killers, and even when they believe they are not, they bring death. I will begin at the beginning, on the night moon first flayed me. She removed my warm fur and dulled my sharp teeth. I was pulled up onto two legs like a thin sapling. Thus I am slowed and can only crawl. And then stumble into the place where humans live. 
the town, they say. Their words are harsh, not like a growl, a woof, or a whine. Humans speak constantly. They are incessant like flies and can say in one thousand words what a wolf could communicate in the tilting of a head and the swift flick of a tail. Talking, they call it. They speak of this ability as if it sets them apart from the other animals. At first I scoffed, but perhaps it does. No other animal would pollute the air with sounds as they do not even the singing birds in the trees. I believe they hate the air. They exhale the food of trees, sure, but we all do, in every moment. They hate the air they need to breathe themselves. I was surprised at first and still do not understand. As massive packs, they seem to seek their own destruction. The human builds caves, sharp-edged, cut wood and stone stacked in odd shapes. From these caves, with their hidden fires, they release thick, black smoke that destroys all sense of smell. They do not smell as we do. They cannot know one another in this way, and I think they would be sad for it if they were smart enough to know and keen enough to feel. They do not see as we see, or hear as we hear. To transform into a human is to dive beneath still and fetid water. All the world is dull. The place they live is rotten. And they have not the sense to keep from defecating where they eat. When Moon transformed me, I was howling a song of my loneliness and fear. I saw a long-lost member of my pack worn in skin across the back of a man as he crashed through the woods. Our love, with her golden fur, hung limp and flapping like a leaf off a tree as he moved. My grief came first as anger, and the softest among us braved my bite to beg me to hide. They brushed under my neck and curved their body around my side. I could smell their fear that I might be taken and so skinned by the human. I respected their thinking, and came that night to the open sky to tell Moon of my family's grief. We would never behave as the humans do. We do not wear the skin of our prey. We do not hunt to boast. I howled as I never had before. When first I was a human, after a few days' acclimation, I tried to teach their large pack how to hunt with dignity. I did not use their flying sticks or paws of thunder. My human paws inhibited my speed in this work, but with all the effort I could muster, I chased a deer to the ground and used my dull teeth and long paws to kill it. I waited for the hunters to join me with their held teeth so that we might open the deer's belly and give thanks to Moon and to the now-dead deer for losing its life in the name of ours. But they screamed their bird-like calls when they saw me. They growled at the sight of warm blood across my face and drug me back to their clearing of caves and told their alpha that they must burn me. I was a monster, they growled. This was not true. I was inhuman. This was true. I had killed the deer like a savage beast. This was an odd thing to say, I pointed out in my stumbling speech given that they had left the dead deer in the woods, rather than eat it, and grant the poor animal some dignity. The humans agreed that I should burn that night. Moon did not agree. 
She transformed me back into myself that I might leap from my confines and run back to the woods. I killed the man who guarded my cage as quickly as I was able, and even gave thanks for his death that gave me life. I believed this would be the end of my time transforming. It was not. The pack was forced to move north into the colder territory to avoid the anger of the village. They sent their disrespectful killers with their flying sticks and bursts of loud fire, but I knew how they moved, and we evaded their efforts with ease. The alpha mates laughed, and even the soft one came to me and touched my chest, despite the pack's fear that Moon's curse might travel between us. I think there is a lesson for me to learn. Moon answered my howling with a power unfamiliar to the pack, but I will bear it. If not for myself, for the lost one with the golden fur, whose flesh they wear for warmth. I think I have not learned it, as I continue to transform each time Moon reaches her largest light. When I am human, I must slink into their pack or else freeze and die. My family demands I use this curse to learn about these killers, these creatures that are not hunters. Why do they trap the other animals and force them to carry their weight and pull large burdens? Why do they cut down the trees and build shelter instead of using the shelter they destroyed? Why do they dig into the ground until the water is poison? Why do they want the rocks they call gold? Why do they kill their own so very often? But I have no answers for the pack, because the humans have no answers for me. When I speak to them, the humans do not seem to know why they do what they do, even while they are doing it. So, I continue to transform, and the pack continues to move north. When I lay in the human bed or barn, alone at night, I feel cold and vulnerable and alone. My pack sleeps warm together, and the humans separate themselves when moon comes up. We howl to express our great joy and sadness, and the humans only go silent in the night and express nothing. I think of the Golden One, and my dull eyes rain for her. I think of the man that wears her and gnash my dull teeth. But I am beginning to understand why the human wore the skin of my lost one whom he killed. To be human is to be alone in the woods. I believe the man would like to be a wolf. I would like to be a wolf again, because I am very lonely. I, first of all, loved that story. Uh, and second of all, texted you, I don't know, a week ago, whenever it was, just thinking about your writing <laughs> style and how you can bring this humanity and this human experience and this empathy to literally anything and the way that you turned it around and brought the empathy to the wolves in this story was so good thank you yeah I, actually because of your text i kind of felt like i was cheating doing that <laughs> but but I, I watership down has been on my mind lately which mm -hmm. is also told from the point of view of animals mm -hmm. and i was interested in this idea that maybe the wolves have a mythology for wolves that turn into people yeah and that from the perspective of the wolves, being a human is the savagery, mm -hmm. the beast, the curse. Yes, exactly. Because I think that 
the werewolf myth is such a good exploration into the human condition and the darker sides of humanity, but that's been done quite a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's something interesting in trying to examine that humanity then again in reverse from the perspective of a wolf and a wolf having this kind of softer quality. Yeah. Uh, This wolf doesn't, throughout the story, doesn't really quite express fear, I think, in the way that I see in a lot of werewolf mythology. Mm -hmm. And it it comes from a place of almost disdain. Yeah. Like, I'm not angry, I'm disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I just think that that's a really interesting discussion, and I really love anthropomorphism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to kind of put it back mm-hmm. in the story. Oh, I loved it. What a great job. You did, you did such a good job. Oh, thanks. Tracy is not fessing up that I stumbled a lot while trying to read the story because the wolf voice uh, words was were just different enough mm-hmm. from how I would talk that I kept goofing throughout the, the piece. Yeah, which is very understandable. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Tracy, tell me something good. All right. Uh, my Something Good is a, another book recommendation. Uh, this one mm. was recommended to you and me by our friend Kaylee Bray. And it's, oh, yeah. I'm in that group, Jeff. <laughs> yes, you are. It's uh, Nettle and Bone by T. Kingfisher. And it just took me by surprise. I highly recommend the audiobook because the audio narration is delightful. But it was just this really cleverly written fairy tale that that does something that I appreciated, which is even though it's a fairy tale, it doesn't feel like you're 30,000 feet away from it. You feel very much in the moment, in the Mm -hmm. feelings, in the emotion of the characters. And the characters are really quirky and interesting and um, well done. It's just, it was fun. It was such a good read and it really took me by surprise by how much I loved it. So I recommend Metal and Bone. I'm glad you're recommending it because I've kind of sworn off titles that are like blank and blank. I know. The Court of Blank and Blank. The Battle of the Blankety Blank. Yeah. Like, a heart of blank and blank. Yeah. Like, I get it. Spooky word plus spooky word equals title. I know. So I don't think I would pick that book up ever if you didn't recommend it. Uh, thanks to Kaylee for recommending it first. Oh, right. That's true. Kaylee, thanks, Kaylee, yeah. for recommending the book. I was texting her the whole time I was reading it. Every time I got to new stuff, I'd be like, I just met this character and I just saw this thing. <laughs> That's so good. Was it YA or was it? No, the main character is a 30-year-old woman. Oh, okay. Now I'm in. Yeah, yeah. I'm so over the YA fantasy pipeline, which, to be fair, it happens often because publishers mm-hmm. think that it can only be marketed to YA, so the characters are aged down. Yeah, you and I learned that in our book marketing course. Yeah, it's so lame. It is. No, I was excited. This main character is 30. And another thing that the author does really well is this main character has really bad social anxiety. And it's never stated like, I have social anxiety. So it's just that she overthinks every social interaction she has. And I was just like, oh, I get this. I so understand that It's a show, not tell kind of situation. Yeah, it's a really good, really, really entertaining read. It's really quick. So I'd recommend it. All right, Rowan, now it's your turn to tell me something Mm. good. So my dad sent me this wonderful, beautiful video that I think speaks so much to regular people creating magic and kind of perpetuating the best parts of mythology and folklore. And that is 
It's a video of a little girl, I believe, sitting on like a Santa's lap. Mm -hmm. Um, And spoiler warning, adults only after this. Um, And she – you hear kind of off screen that someone says like, oh, she doesn't talk a lot. She's not very verbal. Mm -hmm. And the Santa asks if she can sign. And then – he has an entire conversation with this little girl in sign language. Aww. And my dad pointed this out when he sent it to me, and it's so true. But, like, of course Santa Claus can sign. Of course he can. can sign. Yeah. Because Santa Claus is exactly what each kid needs. Yes. And it's so adorable because he's signing very clearly, like someone who's been doing it for a long time. And she is essentially signing doing the sign equivalent of baby talk. Oh, like her, yeah. Her gestures aren't quite as good. Uh-huh. She's not as sure about the words. She doesn't know as many of mm-hmm. them. And it's just such a magical moment that this man was like, oh, can she sign? I got this. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So it just warmed my heart. And, you know, we're going into the holiday season. But just kind of – even if you got rid of all of the holiday details of that, I would still love it. But mm-hmm. the fact that it's it's just making – folklore real is just so beautiful i love that that's really special yeah so thanks dad yeah you sent me the best stuff (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome (laughs) all right and thank you all so much for joining us and remember that stories grow with the telling so if you like what we do tell a friend or tell a foe and we'll see you soon okay Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our logo is by Jamie Harrison, and our music is by Taylor Ash. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes and custom merch, or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. There's also werewolf lore that very close. There's, it's going to be like that today. It always is. It's all good.